Welcome to The Lubber's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast where we are rereading the Aubrey Maturin novels of Patrick O'Brien. Mike, let's just pause for a minute and talk about why we are where we are. Um, we are 80 some episodes into this series. Um, we started the show way back at book one with Master and Commander, but back then, being new to the podcasting business, we went through it a little quickly. We've slowed our pace over time, but lots of you listeners have asked us to revisit Master and Commander at our more in-depth pace of one chapter per week. And it seemed to us like this week could be a good time to get back into Master and Commander and do just that for a few different reasons. First of all, in, in our regular reading of the canon, we're just about to enter 13-Gun Salute following Letter of Mark. At that point, we've already had lots and lots of references all the way back to this, the first book in the canon. So this is a good moment to refresh our memory. Second of all, it is, as we sit here recording now, early in the new year of 2022. And what better way to start a new year? We know lots and lots of listeners and Patrick O'Brien fans who read through the series every year, making their circumnavigation. Maybe you are at that point with us. And perhaps most excitingly, um, uh, Mike, you've talked about this before. There are new Patrick O'Brien readers. One of the things that we've loved about this show is hearing how people are sharing their love of these books with friends and families. Uh, we've read about people on the Facebook group, um, you know, parents reading to their kids at night. We know as we sit here right now that W.W. Norton, the US publisher, has issued new editions of the books with new cover art. There's a rumor of a possible new um, origin story movie in the works and we continue to hold out the hope that one of the streaming giants hbo netflix i'm a disney app all those ones might finally make the definitive series capturing the entire canon and maybe we can get talking with you all on social media about which one you would like to make the series um but mike we are at this point now where this is a really good moment for us to take our listeners up on their request for a reread of master and commander so whether you, our listeners, are joining us as a new reader or someone who's read the series many times, someone new to this podcast, or a regular listener. Welcome aboard. So, Mike, get us back into the traditional rhythm here. Where were we last time on The Lubber's Hole? And where is this new start taking us this week? Oh, it, it, it is so exciting here to be still kind of having that, you know, wonderful New Year's feeling um, part of the new year was a crossing the line special, one of those things where we pause in our reading of the canon to explore a topic in a little bit more depth. We've done humor and children. We've done music. And last week we did leadership and we were joined by French naval historian and fellow Patrick O'Brien reader, uh, Olivier Aranda, who, who gave us great insight from a French point of view. And you and I kind of nerded out a little bit with our our interest in leadership and management from our <laughs> That's right. consulting, uh, you know, the thing that we do when we're not doing Patrick O'Brien. So <laughs> uh, this time, you know, and, and we have, for those of you new, we try not to do any spoilers 
Um, so this is this is going to be a fun one to try not to do that because sometimes our enthusiasm bubbles over. So in the interest of a no spoiler, we have a Royal Navy Lieutenant, Jack Aubrey, who meets a black-coated gentleman named Matron at a concert. And with a little bit of a nod to a spoiler, we would then say that the world's best book series, perhaps with a few personal exemptions based purely on personal taste, but overall, the world's best book series ensues. Fantastic. Can't wait to get started. So, Mike, we're we're right at the start line of this whole thing. Paint the picture for us. Where are we in in time? Where are we in the world? Well, you know, it's interesting. As we think about Patrick O'Brien here, you know, I think it takes both of us back a little bit. So it's now 1968, possibly late 1967. C.S. Forrester, who many of our listeners, you know, have read with the Hornblower series, is dead. And there's kind of a big hole in the universe in terms of this kind of story. Um, In the rest of the universe, Martin Luther King has been assassinated. We've had the tragedy at Kent State is is kind of just around the corner. Uh, Mike Shank, uh, myself, is a very anxious uh, high schooler uh, who's moved from kind of inner city Baltimore to a, a remote rural region of North Carolina. Two people who are destined to become Ian Bradley's parents are about to get married. That's and right. a 52-year-old Patrick O'Brien, with a freshly signed contract from America and British publishers in his pocket, pushes aside the paperwork from the planning battles over his hoped-for new house in Collier to get started on a speculative new literary venture, the novel Master and Commander. So we can just imagine him sitting there and picking up his legendary fountain pen and writing more or less these words as they would be read aloud 20 years later by actor Patrick Tall in a recording studio in New York City. The music room in the governor's house at Port Mahon, a tall, handsome, pillared octagon, was filled with the triumphant first movement of Locatelli's C major quartet. The players, Italians pinned against the far wall by rows and rows of little round gilt chairs, were playing with passionate conviction as they mounted towards the penultimate crescendo, towards the tremendous pause and the deep, liberating final chord. And on the little gilt chairs at least some of the audience were following the rise with an equal intensity. There were two in the third row on the left-hand side, and they happened to be sitting next to one another. The listener farther to the left was a man of between twenty and thirty, whose big form overflowed his seat, leaving only a streak of gilt wood to be seen here and there. He was wearing his best uniform. The white-lapelled blue coat, white waistcoat, breeches and stockings of a lieutenant in the Royal Navy with the silver medal of the Nile in his buttonhole, and the deep white cuff of his gold-buttoned sleeve beat the time, while his bright blue eyes, staring from what would have been a pink-and-white face, if it had not been so deeply tanned, gazed fixedly at the bow of the first violin. Ah, so we've been waiting for a while to find a moment to play in with great respect and thanks a little bit of the audio of fan-favourite Patrick Tull narrating these great audiobooks. 
Now, Mike, we've bumped once or twice before on this reference to Locatelli, and you all know that we like to nerd out on the music references here on the podcast. But let's just say that we've said a number of times now that the Locatelli reference, probably not completely authentic. We don't think he wrote any quartets in C major. But I think, Mike, that that's relatively small news compared to all the other really interesting, both authentic historical and authentic Patrick O'Brien clues that we're getting in these opening paragraphs and in this first chapter here. Um, music, we do know, I think, is is going to be important in the relationship between these two men, and that's one reason why I think Patrick O'Brien is putting down a bit of a marker with this reference to Locatelli. I think he's also putting down one of many markers that are going to show us that he's not going for superficial historical context. He wants the book and these stories to have the patina of interesting, deeply described historical context. So Locatelli is good because he ain't Mozart and he ain't Haydn. Meanwhile, meanwhile, there are lots of questions in people's mind as we start this story about whether his his storylining, his themes, his character attributes and references like this one were all completely thought through and all completely well established when he started Master and Commander. And we've had people ask us on social media, you know, do you think the Locatelli mistake was a was a sort of a deliberate or a playful uh, mistake? And I'd love to hear what all the listeners think, but my vote is no. There's so much else going on here that I don't think he would have had time at this speculative stage to do a real deep think about all of these aspects at this point. The chronology of the later books, as we're going to see, shows that he got caught out a little by some of the mm-hmm. timing choices that he made here, historically. Um, it's fascinating and fun to treat this as the first clue in a 20 or maybe 21 volume crossword puzzle. But my vote, Mike, is that I don't think that's how O'Brien planned it. He was writing what was going to stand on its own as a pretty darn fine historical novel. And some of his references are miles deep and some of them are only half a mile deep. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. Couldn't agree with you more, Ian. Um, you know, and, and we've got, I mean, it's interesting, even the way the novel kind of plays out, you know, we've got yeah. these, you know, these people who are so intense playing this music and we, you know, we've heard just from uh, Patrick talk, God, I love him, how, uh, you know, there are a couple of people in the audience who are really as intense as the musicians. And one of them is the sailor, Jack Aubrey here. Um, and, He's about to tell the man in the seat next to him how much he enjoyed the piece. When the man next to him says, well, if you really must beat the measure, sir, let me entreat you to do it so in time and not half a beat ahead. And and, and Jack is surprised. He's mad. He, he kind of yeah. knows that he was, in fact, beating time and, and assumes that, of course, he was beating it perfectly. And he's about to answer the man when the next piece of music starts. And, you know, Jack's mind and his eyes are on this man sitting next to him. It, you know, O'Brien describes him as a small, dark, white-faced creature in a rusty black coat, a civilian wearing a grizzled, unpowdered wig. And although it's, it's hard to tell, Jack thinks the man's probably about his age and really too plain-looking have such a high opinion of himself to be putting on these airs as Jack's kind of you know, going through in his own mind there. Okay. I mean, Mike, this is an experience many of us had, have, have had, you know, the person next to you in the concert hall or the movie theater is making a noise and, and maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe this is just going to be a distraction. And Jack, his attention is drawn back into the music. 
Um, he looks angrily behind him because there's a soldier there who's making noise and he gets caught up by the cello. Um, he drops his chin to his chest and he starts singing along with the cello line. Pom, 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 pom. And this neighbor, this ill-looking guy, drives his elbow into Jack's ribs, shushes him, and Jack realizes that his hand was indeed in the air, beating time. This funny neighbor guy is looking at him, not with defiance, but something even worse. Total heartfelt disapprobation. Really great choice of word, uh, meaning strong disapproval, typically on moral grounds. So there's something really... Uh, you know, inimical about this glance that um, Jack Aubrey gets from his neighbor. And as the program changes, uh, Mrs. Hart, the commandant's wife, begins to play a difficult piece on her harp. And Jack thinks that the elbow in his side is almost like a blow. And the text says neither his personal temper nor his professional code could patiently suffer an affront. And what was graver than a blow? And my properly attentive readers of this text say, oh, yeah, right away. This is clear that these two were were on thin thin ice towards getting into a duel here. I've got to confess that I wasn't paying that much attention to it the first time I read it. And I didn't quite get the incipient threat of the duel. But Patrick O'Brien's counting on us all <laughs> to pay enough attention and to know at least a little enough about the historical context to realize that this is what this idea of the affront and the blow is all about. And by the way, speaking of paying attention to the historical context, in these first couple of paragraphs, we've got some pretty good clues about when we are in time. And I think, again, O'Brien's counting on us to pick this up. We've already learned from the fact that Jack has the Medal of the Nile, that we are sometime after the Battle of the Nile, known to the French as the Battle of Abu Ghir, as Olivier told us last week. That was in 1798. So it's after then, but it's before the British had withdrawn from Mahon, which took place in 1802. So we've already got some pretty tight clues about exactly where we are in history. We're going to find out more in a short while. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, the harp music is playing. We've got all this history around us in this octagonal room. And Jack's unexpressed anger, the fact that he had to you know, kind of shush himself because the, the music was starting and he couldn't speak his mind, it you know, kind of turns into melancholy here. And his thoughts start to tumble along. He's thinking about not having command of his own ship, of all the ships that had been promised to him, of all the visions that he had, of, of you know what he would do when he got those ships and all the promises broken. He's thinking about this mounting debt that he owes his prize agent and, and that the upcoming interest payment is three times you know, what he's going to draw for his monthly salary. And he's thinking about all these men junior to him you know, yeah. lieutenants, also lieutenants, but in command of their own ships. Uh, you know, people that are younger, people that have interest, people that, you know, aren't quite as senior, but there they are capturing other ships, earning prize money and glory mm. and, you know, the opportunity for advancement. And in the midst of all this, he hears the, you know, the, the, the loud sound of the audience's applause and it brings his mind back to the concert. Now, he's completely missed Molly Hart's heart piece but you know he he knows this you know kind of stand and applaud here but molly hart o'brien tells us looking at him realizes that he was either not pleased or had not been paying attention and she is not happy about that no she's not <laughs> and we, we get a little hint here we get a little hint of the of the character of aubrey as one who has an eye for certain particular ladies and ladies have an eye for him we'll, we'll come back to this we might get to come back much, much later in the story as well 
to a little Easter egg that O'Brien's left for us about what Molly's wearing. She's wearing a double string of pearls taken from a ship called the Santa Brigida. That's a Spanish treasure ship taken by a Royal Navy squadron in 1799. So that places us once again in this bracket of 1798 to 1802. Um, We'll come back to the idea of treasure ships later on, but just let's say it's a nice signal of how important prize money is in society here. Um, Jack and his neighbor stand up to leave and Jack turns around and introduces himself very formally. This is the... Almost the first, this is, this is the first dialogue that amounts to more than a couple of sentences. My name is Aubrey, sir. I'm staying at the Crown. His neighbour replies, mine, sir, is Maturin. I am to be found every morning at Josalito's coffee house. May I beg you to stand aside? And and there we have it. By, by giving their coordinates, <laughs> they've introduced this, the, the formula for either man to be able to ask for satisfaction in a duel if he should so desire. They're both indicating that they'd be happy to fight. And this is still in the air, I think, as Jack walks over to the crowd around Molly Hart. And he tells her, of course, that she played very well. And he sees Navy men that he has served with and notices raised eyebrows in the company and from the commandant secretary in particular, a very significant look. And Mike, we're not sure what to make yet of this very significant look, are we? No, we we aren't. You know, is this, well, I won't even speculate <laughs> that leads, but yeah, something's going on here. And we know that this commandant secretary is an important guy because Jack immediately you know, wonders what he calls that infamous brute has been up to. And this, in fact, is, you know, one of the people involved in this promised ship that Jack has recently lost. Uh, You know, it was promised to Jack, but when the secretary's brother, this infamous brute that's standing here, shows up from Gibraltar, he gets the ship instead. And now Jack is, is kind of going back inside again. He's not happy with the politic tameness that he had displayed when he'd been given the news that, you know, he wasn't going to get that ship. And he kind of equates in his mind to the same way that he just let that small man walk out tonight without kind of thinking of some crushing remark that he could make that, that of course, wasn't boorish. And O'Brien writes about Jack. He was profoundly dissatisfied with himself and with the man in the black coat and with the service And with the velvet softness of the April night and the choir of nightingales in the orange trees and the hosts of stars hanging so low as to almost touch the palms. (laughs) And you can, I, I, you know, I I certainly have been here. It's where, you know, the emotions are now out of control. And and O'Brien, I mean, this is just one of those moments where he's got this beautiful writing about the April night and the nightingales and the stars, but he is you know, turned it like it happens in our real world. It's it's not rational. It's not just this appreciation of beauty. It's this anger, this emotionality, this self condemnation that's going on here. Oh, it's <sighs> just uh, amazing. Yeah, yeah we, and we find it really hard to disentangle anger at other people from anger at ourselves. Right, and right. and, 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 and we've all been the whole world. Right, yeah, yeah, and, and anger as well. Anger. Oh, I, I, I have a dozen ideas for a zinger in my head right now, but none of them came to me at the moment. So I had right, to kind they're, of. They're all there, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know. Twenty minutes later, as we're driving away from the encounter yeah. or something, right? Jack's got. I could at least have said your mama or something, but that would no, <laughs> probably wouldn't, wouldn't quite have cut it. 
Huh. And by the way, it, it, we get another little signal of O'Brien's intention here that the, the, he indulges himself in a line of kind of quite poetic, like you say, very visual writing. Yes. And he's writing about what? He's writing about nature, about nightingales and orange trees, and he's writing about the sky. And we, we've seen many, many other times in the cat. This is the place that he comes back to when he wants to write really visually imaginative, really poetic stuff. It's not very common in O'Brien's writing, but when he wants to write this visually poetic stuff, that's what he turns to. Absolutely. We've already mentioned, by the way, that Mahon is on the island of Menorca. It's a British possession at this point. So we get a little illustration of this as Jack returns to the crown, the inn where he's staying. Um, it has a few things in common with the famous Portsmouth namesake, another inn called the crown. It's a relic not only of the contemporary British occupation, but of many occupations before earlier in the 18th century. It has Menorcan influences like the chambermaid Mercedes, um, but it has lots of British and English looking features as well. And Mercedes, the chambermaid, has brought Jack a letter and says that Captain Allen had come to see him. And there's a moment there of Jack going, oh, why would Captain? Oh yeah, he was coming to ask me about, oh yeah, I remember. Um, but then he looks at the letter and Mike, this this grumbling undertone of discontent is still with him because he looks at the envelope that is addressed to Captain Aubrey RN and not Lieutenant Aubrey and thinks, well, whoever wrote this is a fool, you know? Damn the velvet softness, damn the choir of nightingales, and damn the idiot who wrote this incorrectly addressed envelope and got it sent to me. Ah, and Mike, it's we have a little turn, a little change in the mood here because Jack opens the envelope and finds what's inside it. Yeah, he's, you know, everything in the world is gone bad in his mind now. But now here in very formal letter is this letter saying that Captain Allen uh, has replaced the deceased Captain Bradby on the palace, the you know, HMS palace, and that Jack is to assume command of Allen's former ship, His Majesty's Brig Sophie. And it continues, and you know, I'll just read from the text here. You're yeah. hereby required and directed to proceed on board the Sophie and take upon you the charge and command of commander of her, willing and requiring all the officers and company belonging to the said sloop to behave themselves in their several employments with all due respect and obedience to you, their commander." And you likewise to observe as well the general printed instructions as what orders and directions you may from time to time receive from any your superior officer for his majesty's service. And then this line, <laughs> one of these lines that I just love from the canon. Hereof, nor you, nor any of you may fail as you will answer the contrary at your peril. And the letter is dated 1st April, 1800. There you go. <laughs> so, Mike, we, we, we've had some of the story opened up here for us. We are indeed in April 1800. The master and commander bit, well, here's the commander. Jack's discontent with the world still seems to be simmering. Perhaps we should all step away and grab ourselves a refreshing drink of something Menorcan and come back after this short break. Right. We'll take a breath while Jack hopefully takes a breath. <laughs> If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovershole. 
So welcome back from the break. I hope you had a uh, Mahon gin and tonic. The gin in Mahon is great. Jack isn't ready for a gin and tonic yet, but he's ready for something. His mind, which we remember was pretty much down in the dumps and you know, against himself and the world, looking at this letter of promotion, it can't believe it. He reads it through slowly, line by line. He speeds up the reading. His mouth gets wider. He laughs out loud. More re-readings. Um, he starts to worry then about the unlucky date, April 1st being April Fool's Day. But he looks up and sees that the Admiralty's watermark is there, so it's authentic. He makes a few discontented remarks as he walks around the room. He's thinking about the ship. But then he would have been glad to have got any command. But this is, he realizes, a neat brig. It's the only one in the service, he thinks, with a quarter deck. Now, the thing is, men, can I get men? And as all these thoughts are tumbling in his mind, he realizes that he's starving. And here's one thing that we know about Patrick O'Brien. Big moments in the story are punctuated with food and drink. So he calls for Mercedes, the Menorcan chambermaid, to bring wine and food. And when she calls him Teniente, Spanish slash Catalan for lieutenant, he corrects her and says, no, Capitano, and gives her a big old hug. Yeah. Well, even the next morning, this this glow is still about him. You know, he, he kind of wakes up. He's already been thinking before he woke about this promotion. And, you know, his, his natural urge is to say, I've got to go see the ship. But he realizes, no, 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 no. I've got to warn them first when, you know, when I'm going to arrive. And then he remembers, wait a minute, I've got all these official thank yous that I need to render. I've got to go meet with Captain Allen. And, you know, he's off to do all this, but he stops, as I think he just has to, at the Naval Outfitters. And O'Brien says that he pledges his now elastic credit to purchase a noble, heavy, massive epaulette, the mark of his present rank. So he's like, wait, before I do any of this, I'm getting this thing on my shoulder here. And coming out of the Naval Outfitters, across the street, he sees the black-coated man from the concert standing there by Joselito's coffee house. Mm. And this black-coated man, Mr. Maturin, my, my, uh, I think we were already hoping that the, the mood of their previous encounter might be softened a little bit, but it's completely washed away by the exuberance of Aubrey as he calls over to Mr. Maturin, apologizes for being such a sad bore the previous evening, says, we sailors hear so little music, we aren't used to genteel company, which is stretching a point because I think the idea of this rather shabby little fella being more genteel company than a naval officer is stretching a bit. Anyhow, he says, I was carried away. Maturin says, you had every reason to be carried away. It was one of the finest quartettos I've ever heard. And Maturin invites Jack in for a cup of chocolate or a cup of coffee. And Jack uses a phrase, Mike, that you and I love to hear, and we hear it for the first time here in the canon. Jack says, I should like that of all things. But he's been promoted, and he was in such a hurry that he'd forgotten breakfast. So Maturin wishes him joy of his promotion. And I, I love this line. Now we get some of Maturin interacting with his world. We've had Jack interacting with a naval world, Maturin interacting with his world. The, the waiter gives the, gives this kind of ne negative signal to Maturin. There's no mail for him. I think he's also perhaps saying, you, sir, are way behind with your bill and I'm not going to give you any more food and drink. Anyhow, Maturin orders, despite this, a pot of chocolate furiously whipped and some cream. And he gives this order in Catalan, in the island's language. And this is a very, very memorable line for me. It sticks in my mind the whole time. And Mike, 
you've had some of this experience as well? I did. It, it's funny. It, it wasn't long after you introduced me to the canon, and I had read through this that I was in Barcelona. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, furiously whipped pot of chocolate. That's what I've got to have here. And I had one. It was phenomenal. And so Annie and I were over there for some time, you know, took every opportunity to drink some of this chocolate. And and I was kind of flying back into the States in the airport in Boston, kind of like really missing, you know, the sights and the sounds and this chocolate. And I looked up and on the menu in the airport, it was like, hot chocolate. And I thought, oh my gosh, honey, they have it here too. And, and I ordered it and they walked out with a cup of hot water and a little packet of powdered cocoa. And so, you know, it's kind of the rest of the world's hot chocolate, or at least our world of hot chocolate over here. My my smile faded and I realized my <laughs> vacation was absolutely over. Right? It, it's funny, isn't it? That happens a lot with, you know, treats on vacation. You think, oh, this is great. Why don't we have this at home the whole time? I remember having this, the same thing, drinking Retsina in Greece. And going home to 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 cold British weather and buying a bottle of Ratzinger from the wine store and thinking, actually, this is not so great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but uh, by the way, Mike, uh, there's there's an interesting thing that we've noticed as we've been combing through the text for this more detailed reread of this first chapter, all the way through chapter one, Maturin doesn't get his first name. He is right. Maturin or Mister Maturin, and that tells us a couple of things. First of all. That focuses our attention on Jack. Jack's got a first name, and everything about the, the point of view of the narrative so far tells us that this is a Jack Aubrey story. But for the rest of us who know a little bit about what's coming in the canon, actually, we, 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 there's a little bit of sleight of hand going on here from O'Brien. And it's going to be interesting to see for how long and in what ways the attention stays with Jack Aubrey. And what's going to happen with this character Maturin as we make a few more steps into this story and into the canon generally? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's no spoiler given that we've said we're rereading the, or reading, or rereading, depending on where you are, the Aubrey Maturin novels. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, Jack, Jack comments that Maturin, with no first name, that Mr. Maturin speaks Spanish in this kind of disbelieving you speak spanish sir and he says oh i've tried but i've been no good with languages we've already heard his attempts with mercedes right his attempt at spanish or catalan means putting an o or an a on the end of everything and shouting he's pretty sure that the fault is between his ears he says his latin teacher used to flog him ha huh. and matron is surprised and he ventures this nice kind of conversational gambit that a good ear for music often accompanies a facility for acquiring languages and Jack says, well, I, I do love music, but I sometimes have a hard time finding the true note. And Maturin asks if he plays. And, and Jack, in his very English, very self-effacing way, say, I sometimes torment the fiddle. And Maturin says, well, I make my attempts upon the cello. And my, in our previous reading of the canon, I think we talked about this opening set of encounters between Maturin and Aubrey as being a bit like the, the meat-cute in a romantic comedy. And this is the moment where the antagonism starts to fall away. And these two start to realize they've got some things in common, perhaps even the makings of a friendship. They sit chatting about music until the clock strikes the hour. And then Jack realizes he has to run. He invites Maturin to dinner at the Crown at three o'clock, where he says, they'll wet the swab and perhaps try some music. 
if that's going to be okay with Maturin. And of course, wetting the swab means drinking a toast to the new epaulette. We've seen a lot of Jack's world, Ian, as you as you said, and now we get a little view into Matron's world. They're you know they're walking out of the coffee house, and Matron you know is listening to Jack, but then he just cries. He looks up over him, and says, "Did you see that hoopo?" Jack says, "What is a hoopo?" and and Matron says, "It's a bird, that cinnamon colored bird with barred wings, upapa epops." There, there, on the roof, there, there. And so Jack, you know, calls back, where, where? How does it bear? Ah, Matron says, it's gone now. I'd been hoping to see a hoopo ever since I arrived. In the middle of the town, happy Mahan to have such denizens. But I beg your pardon, you were speaking of wedding a swab? And so, you know, Jack explains that, you know, the swab is this epaulette and that they drink bottles of wine to it when they first ship it, as Jack says. And Matron looks at it and says, oh, a decoration, a badge of rank, I make no doubt, a most elegant ornament. So it is upon my soul. But my dear sir, have you not forgotten the other one? Uh, Well, says Jack laughing, I dare say I shall put them both on by and by. Now, I wish you a good day, and thank you for your excellent chocolate, and I'm so happy that you saw your EPOP. <laughs> so, you know, I just, like you said, it, you know, kind of the meat cute fully rounded out. Now we get the world of Stephen with his birds. We get the world of Jack with his swabs and wearaways, and, and neither one of them, you know, and, oh, I, a decorative, you know, ornament of rank here. So, you know, it's so funny and wonderful how they completely misunderstand some things other than music in their own worlds. And, you know, we've seen them at the concert, even in the music world, they're very different. And here in their own worlds, they're very different, but they're also being so kind to each other's interests. <laughs> Jack yeah. kind of reaching back here to, you know, um, I'm so happy that <laughs> you saw your bird here, right? And it, it's fascinating that the encounter the previous night at the concert, I think they were both quite willing to be discontented with other people. Right. And it, it, it's not that they've learned acres and acres of new facts about each other. It's just that they've encountered these other characters in, in a different frame of mind. And when you're in a different frame of mind, differences look appealing and charming and fascinating. Whereas when you're in a grump, then differences look you know annoying and irritating and kind of I think it's a really nice study in how we think about people and how we think about ourselves. I also like the fact that we've had a little clue already that tells Patrick Tull how to voice Stephen Maturin. There's a little bit of Irish usage in what he says. Um, a most elegant ornament, so it is upon my soul. That, that's so it is. That's a, a hallmark of right. Irishness. We're going to talk about Irishness in this book. We're going to talk about Irishness a lot as we talk about the identity of Patrick O'Brien and whether it's fanciful or not. But there we go, a little clue of another angle of difference between Jack and this guy, Maturin. And Mike, we dug a little bit into um, Locatelli a few paragraphs ago. I've got a suspicion that this hoopo bird is a much better source of an Easter egg for digging into Patrick O'Brien's kind of thoughts and context here. Tell, tell us a bit about the hoopo. Well, it, you know, it is fabulous because, you know, I think... Last time reading through, we were kind of you know so taken by this interaction between the two characters, and we just blew right by the bird. And now, you know, 10, 10 11 books later, we're realizing, boy, Patrick O'Brien typically does not drop these things in unintentionally, or mm-hmm. probably better to say, 
If you want to follow some of these little Easter eggs, we call them, or you know, kind of pick up the uh, the corner of the mat and look under, sometimes there's some rich rewards and great fun, and the hoopo is one of them. Now, my Greek and Latin pronunciations are terrible, despite having intensive <laughs> training in the in the ancient Koine Greek, but I just am that stage of life. But this upapa epops, apparently, and I, I I stumble a little bit because it's a Greek and a Latin name put together, both of which were meant to be kind of onomatopoeia. They're both trying to sound like the call of the bird. So the Latin in its own way, Greek in its own way, trying to describe the call of this Eurasian hoopoe. Wikipedia, God bless you, Wikipedia. We support you because we use you so much. It describes it as colorful birds found across Africa, Asia, and Europe notable for their distinctive crown of feathers. Um, and, and, you know, we'll put out on social media, perhaps get you a picture of this, get the sound of trying to say these words to make it sound like this fascinating little call of this bird. Um, but here, um, as, we, as we dig into it a little bit, you know, what we find is that... Uh, during migration, for example, these birds have been seen flying by Mount Everest. So they're up there wow. at 6,400 meters, 21,000 feet high. They were yeah. sacred in ancient Egypt. The Persians considered them kind of ultimate symbols of virtue. Uh, one even appears in the Quran. It, it's this hoopoe that's come to tell King Solomon all about the Queen of Sheba. Now, so you've got all this royalty, almost godlike status, whereas in Europe, they're seen as thieves. In Scandinavia, they're harbingers of war. And in Germany and, and across some of medieval Europe, indeed, they were you know, really important in ritual magic. So they were often sacrificed to summon demons or to perform other magic. And, you know, kind of even roll that forward and backwards in the Old Testament, Leviticus in the 11th chapter lists them as one of these detestable, not to be eaten things, um, you know, which actually gets another mention in the Old Testament. But they are today the national bird of Israel. So, you know, what a <laughs> fascinating you know, species, this hoopoe here. And, and I think that, you know, O'Brien just delights in references like this. So, you know, by using the hoopoe here, O'Brien is not only telling us something about Stephen Matron, but he's also signaling that this is a really important meeting for Aubrey and Matron, as we've kind of been following for good or for ill, because it's been a little bit of both up until now. And, And I think he leaves us to puzzle, ah, which way is this headed here? Yeah. And, and I love the ambiguity of the, the identity and the character of the hoopoe. It means a few different things to a few different people. And I'll, I'll just plant that as my first evidence for the case that actually the character of Stephen Maturin is something that Patrick O'Brien's already got in his head. But never mind, that's, that's racing ahead. Meanwhile, then, back in the story, um, Jack goes, first of all, to call upon Captain Hart, the naval commandant of Port Mahon. Now, Captain Hart is going to be an important secondary character. Molly Hart, his wife, is going to be an important secondary character in this book and a little beyond. Hart is reported to be um, a a little bit similar in appearance to Lord St. Vincent, the first Lord of the Admiralty, Um, something that he seemed to encourage by stooping, by being savagely rude to subordinates, and by being a Whig. (laughs) And 
again, we start to get some idea of the the political context. But you know, there's this wiggishness, this uh, sort of officious and, and efficiency obsessed character is presented to us as something a bit unfavorable. Hart, the Whig, didn't like Jack. We're going to hear about Jack's politics in a minute. Perhaps because Jack's tall, perhaps because Hart thought that Jack was carrying on an intrigue with his wife. And there's this long-standing bad blood between Aubrey and Captain Hart. And Hart gets straight into the interview in uh, in rudeness, just like St. Vincent, and says, where the devil have you been, Aubrey? Um, Captain Alan and I expected to see you yesterday. Hart reports that Alan is now far away. He's taken all of his good sailors, officers, midshipmen, and critically his surgeon with him. And Hart, just to amplify the misfortune here, says, well, I've had to draft some of your remaining men for harbour duty. And th- th- this is bad news for Jack. First of all, he's aghast that Palace's new ship has already sailed. He's missed out on a few important things here. Um, Hart says it sailed at midnight. They couldn't keep waiting for him. Jack says, well, I only learned about this command between 1 and 2 a.m. when I got back from the uh, from the music evening. And Hart says, well, that must be the fault of the people at your inn. And he goes on to make some fairly ill-conditioned remarks about them not being English. He gives Aubrey, meanwhile, joy of his command, but has no idea, he says, how Aubrey will ever take her to sea with no people and says that I have nothing to offer you other than a chaplain. And that is, it says in the text, turning the knife in the wound, giving giving us a hint that chaplain is not one of the open positions on the roster that Jack is in a great hurry to fill. Jack says he'll make do with what he has unless the chaplain can hand, reef and steer, which is sailor talk for... Can you set sail? Can you shorten sail? And can you handle the boat? And clearly there is no chaplain around in Mahon who can do those three things. And Jack says, well, in that case, I'll bid you good day and I'll stop by Mrs. Hart to thank her for the concert last night. And Hart says, oh, you were at the concert. And O'Brien tells us that Hart knew that Jack would be at the concert. Then he delivered the letter accordingly so that Jack wouldn't get it until Alan was gone. And he's digging into this kind of little minor plot here for Hart to undermine Aubrey. And Hart comes off with this great kind of pompous quote. He says, if you had not gone a caterwauling, you might have been aboard your own sloop in an officer-like manner. God, strike me down. But it's a pretty state of affairs when a young fellow prefers the company of Italian fiddlers and eunuchs to taking possession of his own first command. Um, Mike, I wonder if Captain Hart is hoping that the company his wife keeps is mostly eunuchs. We'll see. Right, right, right. And 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 I think he's doing all in his power to make sure that if they're not, they become one. Exactly. <laughs> he's trying to demasculate a jack, if you will, to uh, to to invent a new word here. <laughs> but you know, Jack does go by to you know to say hi to to Mrs. Hart to Molly Hart. And, you know, he finds her, as O'Brien tells us, she often is in the morning sitting there with her harp receiving guests, all of them military men. <laughs> so there there happens to be, uh, you know, a, a lieutenant and a midshipman already there. Um, they all congratulate Aubrey on his promotion. And Mrs. Hart calls for something to wet the swab. Um, and O'Brien, you know, again, he's sort of filling us in on these characters here. So he tells us that Mrs. Hart, and I'll, I'll read his words, despised her scrub of a husband who truckled to her, and she had taken the music as a relief for him, 
but it did not seem that music was enough. For now, she poured out a bumper and drank it off with a very practiced air. So, you know, <laughs> she doesn't like this kind of servile little husband of hers that kind of, you know, you know, dotes on her and tries to bang to her every wishes. And she's, you know, she's with these other men, it sounds like. She's drinking a lot. I don't know. Ian, does this bring up anything in your mind? Well, I... It, it it starts a version of the story going in my head where Molly Hart is this kind of Scarlett O'Hara type, you know, MGM style, 1950s Hollywood starlet, you know, all the, the, the knowing looks and the kind of confidence and the hard drinking. And it would have been a very different story if we'd gone in that direction. Right. But we're not going to. And uh, we're, there are going to be other things that we'll learn about Molly Hart as the story continues. But the lieutenant leaves and Mrs. Hart sees the opportunity to fob off the midshipman sends him on an errand and while they're together alone jack tells her how beautifully she played and she says that i'm so glad that you have a ship and they read his commission together and she calls out answer the contrary at your peril she she likes the line almost as much as we do mike right she warns jack about not taking neutrals as prizes and says they won't be going anywhere soon because alan and hart had taken all his men now this is Jack reporting to Molly, but then Lady Warren and her brother, who's a captain of Marines, come in. Molly introduces Jack and talks about this grave injustice of the ship having no men. And she asks Lady Warren's help for Aubrey, whom she characterizes as a gallant, deserving officer, a thorough-paced Tory. So, Mike, in the politics of Britain at the time, you had your Tories and you had your Whigs, and Hart is a Whig, and we've just had Jack... Uh, highlighted for us there as a bit of a Tory. He leaves, walking out to the terrace that overlooked the Keys, hoping to see his ship. And by the way, Mahon is the world, I think, second biggest natural harbour. The extent of water that in this waterway that curves around away from the Mahon Harbour, it might be very, very difficult, actually, to set eyes on a ship that's way out in the roadstead. And Jack can't quite see his ship. What he can see is man-of-war crews ashore, and that sets him worrying about how he's going to get enough men to fill the ship's company, given this trick that Hart seems to have played on him. He walks down the pigtail steps. And Mike, the, the pigtail steps are still there today. Um, even if the governor's mansion isn't exactly there, it's now part of the uh, the, the, the military establishment in Maon, and you can't go and see it, but you can still walk down the pigtail steps to this day. And as he's looking through the many kinds of boats and ships that are in the harbour, he then walks on and goes to see his prize agent's correspondent, Mr. Williams, in hope of getting money for gifts and the gratuities that he's going to need to grease palms to get his ship ready. Yeah, so they've concluded their business, Jack and Mr. Williams, and Mr. Williams asks Jack if he's seen the Sophie's lieutenant, Mr. Baldick. And Jack says, no, no, Alan took him away. And Mr. Williams says, no, 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 he came ashore right before Alan left and checked himself into the hospital. He didn't really want to go with Alan because he really didn't like the Sophie's surgeon. And I suspect he's going to rejoin the ship, you know, perhaps at Gibraltar when he gets better. And then Mr. Williams, who's usually kind of on the receiving end of requests, gets a little funny because he has a request to make of Jack. And he wants to know, he knows that the Clark has the, clerk, I would say, and the clerk, as, as Patrick Tall would tell us, because this is O'Brien writing, you know, has left the Sophie and his wife's cousin, you know, is kind of really wanting to get to see, ultimately become a purser. And 
you know, wants to know if Jack would be interested in taking him on. They talk about him and Jack says, yeah, you know, I'd be happy to do that if he can come along and you guys can find another able seaman for me. And we're going to get introduced to a character here, which is kind of you know nice, which will come later. But, you know, this idea of people asking for favors, being afraid of being rebuffed. We'll see this kind of play out through the canon here. And it's kind of a nice thing as Jack is starting to assemble his own crew here a little bit. So he meets this cousin, David Richards, has him write a letter and send it off to the marshal on the Sophie. And this guy actually, because he's been working in this prize agent's office, knows a lot of these characters. And Mr. Richards has said, you know, not only has he written this, but he's going to go deliver this to tell, give them advance warning that Jack will be coming to the ship at 1 p.m. Yeah. And, and by the way, Mike, we, we talked last week about the leadership qualities of Jack. And Jack's doing a very nice, conventional but nice thing here by giving the folks who are on board the Sophie a bit of warning that the godlike figure of the uh, the commanding officer is about to descend upon them. Right. Unlike so, some folks who would go surprise them and ambush yeah. them and call them out to establish them under his thumb, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So again, this is, I think, Jack, the sort of old regime, gentlemanly kind of officer. And I think it's a nice little signal about his character. Right. And then now we get a, a little bit more about Jack in the context of the family of the Navy. We, we talk a lot about Jack and, and the family of the Navy and the family of ships companies. He goes then to visit Lieutenant Baldick in the hospital. This guy is a 50-year-old lieutenant. He thanks Aubrey for coming, says, I'm going to be fine now that I'm not under the care of the former surgeon of the Sophie. Um, the lieutenant, we learn, believes in something called Ward's Drop. Um, he doesn't like the surgeon's water cure and low diet. This is this is the era, Mike, of course, when there was there was quack medicine and everybody had their favorite quack medicine that was a panacea. Um, Jack thinks that this particular lieutenant also puts his faith in what Jack calls brother bung, meaning the power of alcohol. He gets a strong smell of liquor in the room. And Jack notes in conversation to Baldick that the Sophie's lost her surgeon and lots of men. The lieutenant says, well, the surgeon's no great loss. Um, it's impossible to find another. We should stick a pin in that idea. He offers Jack a drink and tells him that actually only a few men and those ones that there were Americans had gone along with Alan, along with a couple of his followers, his coxswain, his steward and his clerk. And Jack says, well, Hart told me the brig had been stripped and we learn from Lieutenant Baldick that he's known Hart for a very long time. And Hart is fond of using, great Patrick O'Brien phrase, uh, is fond of practicing on people, some kind of heavy-handed humor. And Mike, I, I really like this way that we've used the conversation with Baldick here. It's, it's something that O'Brien is going to end up doing a lot. He uses a, an interesting or a quirky secondary character, in this case, Baldick, to lay out a bit of exposition and sketch out the, the attributes of some of the secondary characters. He's this slightly distant narrator figure who also gives us some clues about the manners and prejudices of the time, as we're about to see as he talks a little bit more about the ship's company here. Mike, as Baldick talks us through the the, the main officers and the main characteristics of the people aboard the Sophie, he's starting to show us some of the connections and the roles and the responsibilities in the Navy. And we hear all these different kind of words about the, the, the jobs and their connections in a way that I think we're just expected to keep up with. It's all quite bewildering even. 
Well, and, and it is interesting, and I, I remember my first time through Mastering Commander. I mean, even a little bit earlier in this, when you know Jack is up there by the pigtail steps and is looking over that harbor and goes on to name you know thirty five different kinds of boats, ships, vessels, conveyances in there, and I'm thinking, God, my God, what's a Zebek? What's a Snow? What's a this? What's a that? And and I think this is you know we want to take a pause. We'll we'll get to rigging soon in a couple of chapters and. Oh my gosh, you know, so many times we talk to people or, you know, I had that same effect that you kind of say, gee, I don't know all the, and you can insert your topic here. I don't know all the nautical references, historical references, scientific observations, period expressions. So I didn't finish the book or I didn't enjoy the book as much because I felt like I had to kind of go finish my PhD and all these things like this Mm -hmm. period I O'Brien is, but you don't need to know that. So as we're about to come up to some of these job titles, and as we look back on ships, parts, and bird species, and we've had these little turn of uh, phrases from the period, you don't have to know them to enjoy Patrick O'Brien any more than you have to know all the, for example, ships and propulsion mechanisms and mythologies and histories and languages if you're a fan of or enjoying Star Trek or Dune or Middle Earth or Jane Austen. You know, we don't have to be able to speak like the characters, you know, to know what's going on here. So continue on. If If you're early on here, you know, perhaps you wouldn't be listening if you weren't already into it. But if you're new to this, we would just say, you know what? It's just fun. And we're going to be digging into these and we're going to be introducing you to resources along the way in the canon that will help you. If you want to do a quick finding out about something, here's some quick and easy places to go look for them. Great. And therefore, we don't have to worry too much about what a bosun, what a gunner, and what a purser and what a sailing master are, even though Baldick gives us this very quick rundown. He says, actually, there's a fair crew left, 20 to 40 able seamen at least. Half of them are real men of war's men. No sea lawyers, by which he means there are none of the kind of awkward, discontented, kind of insurrection-minded people. The standing officers, the boatswain knows his business. The carpenter's a bit slow. The gunner is good as long as he's in good health. The purser Ricketts is good for a purser. And the master's mates, master's mates being senior to midshipmen, but not yet as senior as lieutenants. Uh, he has pullings in that category who passed for a lieutenant years ago, has never been made. And Mowat, similarly, both of them can be trusted with a watch. The boys, that is to say the, the young gentlemen of the kind of midshipmen under training, are Ricketson and Babington, both described <laughs> with great humour as blockheads but not blackguards. And Jack says that he's heard that the master, Marshall, is a really good navigator. And Baldick says, well, yes, so he is, but uh, I don't know what you think about this buggery lark. He says, Jack doesn't like it, but he says he doesn't like seeing people hung for it either. And he wonders if there's any abuse going on of the ship's boys. And Baldick says, well, he's not actually uh, you know, engaging. He's not actually indulging his proclivities. And again, I like this fact that we're getting Baldick showing the attitudes of the time and the author through Jack saying, well, okay, maybe we can be a bit more tolerant and we can be a bit more open-minded and a bit more forgiving. As well as seeing the naval detail, we're seeing that Patrick O'Brien is going to be serious about trying to show this to us in a deep and authentic way. C.S. Forrester never wrote about gay relationships aboard ships. He certainly never tried to portray the prejudices of 18th and 19th century society in quite a, a direct way. 
And I do remember, Mike, that Olivier last week did say that Patrick O'Brien spares us some of the most nitty-gritty aspects of service life, including sexual assaults between men. And that was clearly a thing. But I like the fact that we've got Baldick saying, I have this prejudice, and Jack saying, well, hold on a second. I'm not so sure that it's such a, such a thing after all. Yeah, I love that he's starting to tease out here, you know, the difference between, you know, a sexual assault, between a gay relationship, between uh, pedophilia or, uh, you know, kind of, you know, this older, powerful, you know, it's kind of, it's very subtle. But I think what we find in the canon is that O'Brien is really doing that, opening up the human condition in its yeah. subtleties and in yeah. and, and not in black and white, but yeah. in the grays of us in as we are and who we are, which is really, you know, amazingly done and kind of like not having, you know, you don't have to have your, you know, your PhD in psychology or leadership or any of this stuff to really be able to use these books, not only as a fabulous read, but a great mirror to our lives. Oh, really well put. I, I, I love that. The, the, he's highlighting already the gray areas, like you said, Mike. I think that's really, really, really true. Ah, so he's highlighting the gray areas. He's got to get on and highlight some dinner as well. Jack goes by the crown to arrange the dinner that he's going to eat with Maturin, walks to the waterside to step on board the Sophie. And for the first time, we get a bit of vulnerability from this rather confident, almost blustering character, Jack Aubrey. He has a hard time swallowing and wonders if he's actually afraid. He's very pleased as he looks across the ship and sees her condition. He's pleased with his official reception. Everyone is there in their best uniforms. They're performing admirably. He has the master, Mr. Marshall, name the officers and reads himself in in front of the crew because there's a lieutenant. And reading in is the moment where he takes that order that he'd received from the commander-in-chief and reads it aloud so that the members of the crew know that he, Jack, is the inheritor of the title of commander of this vessel. The line, hereof nor you nor any of you may fail as you will answer the contrary at your peril, rings out once again, and it clearly has a, you know, an instruction in there for the ship's company as well as for Jack. He does his inspection, and that goes well. And, and Mike, again, I'm getting a little hint of the savvy leadership of Jack Aubrey to pick up on yeah. what we talked about last week. He saw and appreciated all that he was meant to see. He was blind to the things that he was not meant to see. The piece of ham that an officious forecastle cat dragged from behind a bucket, the girls the master's mates had hidden in the sail room and who would keep peeping out from behind mounds of canvas. He took no notice of the goat abaft the manger that fixed him with an insulting, devilish, split-pupiled eye and defecated with intent. <laughs> and Jack, it says, who had been at sea since he was nine, took it all in with his professional eye. And complete with an animal reference that's classic Patrick O'Brien. Right, right. And and the humor of, you know, I you know, maybe it just says something about who I am, but you know, a devilish split pupiled eye and defecated with intent. <laughs> it's it's just uh, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm chuckling too much here. Well, the, the the goat, the goat shouldn't be too pleased with itself because the goat and goats in general don't come well out of this novel, I've got to say, but we'll No, we'll stick no, a pin we in will that be hearing about and from <laughs> to the goat again. You know, Jack kind of in his mind is thinking about all the officers that he saw then. 
And you know, he you know, O'Brien gives us great detail about each of them and you know how Jack is starting to kind of see them. And there's a little bit of kind of a takeaway here that while Jack appreciates them and and kind of ranks them, he doesn't, you know, there's no shiny patina that goes across all them, over all them. On the other hand, he didn't allow kind of what he'd been pre-told to to affect his judgment of them. But there's kind of this feel that this thing is kind of a, a an old-fashioned ship. And yeah. perhaps we're kind of taken to believe that part of that is an imprint of the prior captain. So it kind of leads us to start to wonder, ah, Jack, first command, what's he going to do? And as you say, you know, even, and O'Brien gives us another hint here. It says that, uh, you know, Jack talks to the master down in his cabin, this spacious cabin, at least compared to anything Jack's ever had before. And, you know, he tells him that, you know, he compliments him on the Sophie's appearance. It's very ship shape, but O'Brien says that, you know, he doesn't say any more. He doesn't go out and kind of gratuitously address the men. He doesn't announce like this special indulgence, you know, something that, you know, to kind of celebrate his coming on board because he did not like the idea of a popular captain. So, you know, we've got this, we're starting to see Jack establish himself, his ideas about running the ship. And then as the marshal leaves, Jack's kind of looking around this cabin, which is amazing compared to anything he's been in. And he's thinking to himself that it's kind of, you know, it's more than he would have ever hoped for or imagined in a way. Uh, but he feels a little bit of what he calls kind of this bitterness of his school days, that there's something underneath his exultation that's going on. And as he is being rowed away from the ship by this silent midshipman and Babington sitting there beside him, and he realizes what it is. And O'Brien writes uh, about Jack. He was no longer one of us. He was they. Indeed, he was the immediately present incarnation of them. In his tour of the brig, he'd been surrounded with a deference, a respect different in kind from that accorded to a lieutenant, different in kind from that according to a fellow human being. It had surrounded him like a glass bell, quite shutting him off from the ship's company. And on his leaving... The Sophie had let out a quiet sigh of relief, the sigh he knew so well. Jehovah is no longer with us. <laughs> this is another little link to our leadership stuff last week, isn't it, Mike? Is that he's he's made this big step uh, up to being commander, to being captain of the ship, and he's experiencing then how he's cut off from the crew. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, I, I remember in an early management class being given this coin. Yeah. And on one side, it said us. And on the other side, it said them. You know, and as you went up, he said, you know, you've got to be mindful of this, how you manage that, and what that means here. You know, this is this is kind of a, you know, a jarring change, I would think, from Jack, you know, having been on board yeah. as nine, having, as we'll learn later, you know, really, really been involved with the life of ships and, and the people on it. And now here he is kind of like, you know, Brian says in this glass bell here, um, it's got to be a jarring change. And I'm wondering kind of how Jack reacts to that. Well, he, here's Jack's reflection on what it all means. It is the price that has to be paid. And by God, it's worth it. 
As the words formed in his mind, so the look of profound happiness, of contained delight, formed once more upon his shining face. Yet, as he walked off to his meeting at the Crown, to his meeting with an equal, there was a little greater eagerness in his step than the mere lieutenant, Aubrey, would have shown. End of chapter one. <laughs> wow. Wow. What a fascinating beginning. You know, this yeah. scene setting for what, you know, many people have called a 5,000 page novel that's, that's ahead of us here. You know, that, that sometimes these books are, are almost all of the piece, as we say. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we've got these two characters. We haven't really got to know very much about, certainly not very much about Maturin, but we've got the stark, stark difference between Aubrey and Maturin. Um, they have realized that they're different, although they've begun to realize as well that the difference doesn't have to have to mean that they're going to be rivals or enemies. We've got this interesting difference raised in that very last paragraph as well by O'Brien between the relationship that Jack has with people on the Sophie, all of whom are his subordinates, and the relationship that he could have with somebody else who is a peer, who's an equal. And and maybe that allows us to think that something else might be allowed to go on here between these two men at the beginning of an admiration or a friendship. You know, we've seen all the way through this first chapter, some of which we didn't talk about as much, what a close set of relationships there are in the Navy. How many people know each other or know of each other in a lot of this, you know, little chit chat at the concert at Molly Hart's place. Um, and we've seen how this conservative Captain Allen, we didn't speak as much about that, but we got clues and hints about that um, yeah. in this first chapter, appeared to have influenced his ship and his crew. We've got this brief introduction to what is really now Jack's new naval family on board the Sophie, his men and his officers. And we're wondering, you know, how will he shape them? How might they shape this new young first time commander? You know, I, yeah. I think this is, always comes to my mind. You know, you, uh, you know, I've got friends just out of Naval Academy in years past and then going on with all these folks with all this sea time and, you know, or the same thing in, in other branches of the military. You know, what do you yeah. do when your chief has been around for 20 years and you're right on board? Now, Jack has been around for lots of years, but as we've said here, in a very different capacity. Yeah, and we've got some bits of peril and some bits of vulnerability for Jack's career. We already know that it's possible to get left behind in your career because he's pointed out that friends of his who are younger but more more uh, more, more well-connected than him are making better progress in their careers. We met Lieutenant Baldick, who's 50 years old and still only a lieutenant, so he can't take it for granted. We know there's no great goodwill between Jack and Captain Hart. And we had this repeated warning that comes through at the end of the uh, the standing orders there. Hereof nor you nor any of you may fail as you will answer the contrary at your peril. So we've got a bit of jeopardy for our probably hero, Jack Aubrey. Huh. But but, but what else is there? We, we've talked about the, the advantage and the benefit of taking prizes. Is Jack going to get anywhere close to taking a prize? Is he even going to get his ship out of the harbour? And what, what kind of naval history action novel is this anyway? When we've had no mention of the French or the Spanish enemies, we've had no exposition of the military situation, we've had no urgent signals, no secret orders in the dead of night, no hint of death or glory missions to come. You know, we haven't even had a cannon mentioned yet. 
And therefore, is Jack going to get on with that stuff? Is he going to go out straight out to sea, as we probably expect? Or is there some more development of this character story that's going to be developed on dry land? Well, clearly, I think, Ian, there's only one way to find out. What do you say next week to a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? With all my heart. and the prejudice poof, about the managers the managers <laughs> about <laughs> the go, managers Sam, we've got an outtake for you <laughs>